0: Wonderful, powerful, my hope and my defender, my dwelling place forever. That's our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And even when we are surrounded by difficulties, by loss, by trial, by a pandemic, even when we feel alone and abandoned, God, this God is faithful. We are continuing to live in difficult times. I keep checking the statistics here day after day, looking for for the day when cases in New Jersey and Mercer County will start to drop. But it hasn't happened yet. This past Thursday, I was uh, preparing to film my little video clip into the Scriptures under two minutes. I was uh, doing that, and I, I focused on a verse in Hebrews during that clip, and I related it to men and women in prison. Prisoners right now are especially at risk from the coronavirus. And as I was thinking about them and praying for them, my mind was also moving to other, other vulnerable people, men and women in the armed forces, on ships, you know, living in close quarters away from family and loved ones, elderly in managed care facilities, children who are, are sheltering in place right now in homes of high risk where there might be violence or substance abuse or some other kind of abuse. We need to be praying for all these situations and and helping however we can. But I also realized on Thursday morning, we need hope in the middle of all this. To use Old Testament terminology, we need the Lord to lift up our heads, to help us see to see with compassion, and to see with hope. So this morning, I want to focus your attention on some really, really good news. I want to dig into a promise of Jesus, a realistic promise of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 16. So why don't you get there in a Bible, Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to be focusing on verse 18. You can consider this sermon the doorway into a series that will officially start next week—a series on First Corinthians. You'll hear more about that next week. But here we are this week in Matthew chapter sixteen, verse eighteen is a text. I'm going to read you thirteen through twenty-one. Before I do so, these nine verses are the climax of Matthew's opening sixteen chapters. Matthew tells us at the start of his gospel what he believes about Jesus. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, it reads. The son of David, a messianic title, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew wrote that long after the fact. In other words, a couple decades after the events that he records in his gospel. And as he tells the story in his gospel, he is true to the reality that he and the others at the time didn't really get who Jesus was, at least in these opening chapters, so to speak, of the story. Is he the promised Messiah? Is he the promised son of David? Matthew 12, 23 captures the, the driving question of the book well. Here it is. The people were amazed at the miracle Jesus performed and they said to one another, could this man be the promised son of David? So with that question in mind, is this the Messiah? Let me read 16 verses 13 to 21. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, other Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is God's word. Now, there it is in verse 16 the long awaited answer to the question could this be the Messiah? Is this the son of David? The great pronouncement from Peter, speaking for the whole group, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Now, did you notice that the event here took place in Caesarea Philippi, verse 13? In other words, Gentile territory. Caesarea Philippi was a Roman Greek reading region. In fact, not far away from where Jesus and the disciples were was was undoubtedly a, the, the, uh, the well-known shrine to Pan in the first century, a, a, a Greek God. And that's probably why Peter says in verse 16, You are the son of the living God. Living God was an old testament Hebrew way of singling out the one true God from all the other false dead gods. But you're the Messiah. Peter says, and Jesus answered, A plus. You got it. You know who I am, and I know who you are, verse 18. Verse 18, as Jesus says it to Peter, it, it's so filled with energy, the verse. It's, there's so much dynamic to it. I think of, I think of verse 18 kind of like a, a litter of six-week-old puppies. You know, they're... they're Energetic, moving around, bumping into each other, pushing, pulling. You know, it's, it's hard to contain them. And it's the same thing with this verse. This verse is playing off of what's just happened, it's going to play off of what will happen uh, in the rest of the chapter. Uh, here's an exploded translation of verse 18 that gets at some of the dynamics. Matthew 6, 18. And now, Simon, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. You are Peter, a rock. And this is the rock on which I will build my church, a church so filled with my life that not even the powers of death will be able to stop it. What a verse. And at the heart of the verse is a promise. I will build my church. It's a realistic promise. And I say it's realistic because it's like a lens. It helps us see more clearly. But as is the case with any lens, both sides of the lens play a part in helping us see clearly. In this case, it's a lens that helps us see the church clearly and to see the church clearly to see what christ is doing now in and through the church we need both sides of this lens so let me take each side in the order as they appear in verse 18 the first side of the lens is jesus amazing statement about peter Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, the guy we know as Peter was originally called Simon. His dad's name was Jonah. We get that there in verse 17. Simon Bar, Jonah, son of Bar, means son of, son of Jonah. He was originally called Simon. But way back... A couple of years before this event, Jesus called Simon to follow him, and when he did that, he gave Simon another name, a second name, Peter. Here's a text in John 1, John: 141. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, "Your name is Simon, son of Jonah, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter." Now that was a couple of years before. Now we find out why Jesus chose the name. Actually, as best that we can tell, now we find out why Jesus made up that name. Peter means rock. And Jesus plays around with that meaning of rock. You're Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church what does that mean? Sometimes people say, well, the rock here is what Peter just confessed. The great confession of verse 16. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he's the son of God. And that the, the truth of that statement, that the message of that reality, that's, that's the rock. And that's nice, and it certainly is a, a true thing that that message is a rock, But that's not what Jesus is getting at in this text. Jesus is playing with Peter's name. He's giving us what we're often given like in the Old Testament, an etymology, an an explanation of the meaning of a name. The rock upon which Jesus will build his church is Peter. And I would hasten to add, since he's the spokesman of the group, the rest of the apostles and disciples with him. In other words, it's their preaching, it's their teaching, it's their writings, it's their message, it's the gospel that they preach that Jesus used and continues to use to build his church. Paul, Peter's later friend, puts it this way, Ephesians 2 verse 20, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. And the prophets. So Peter, along with the other apostles, Ephesians 2.20, Matthew, James, John, Andrew, the others. Peter, along with the prophets, Ephesians 2.20, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Malachi, the others. Peter is the foundation of the church. Peter is the foundation of the church. This is Peter, the coward. This is Peter, the loudmouth. This is Peter, the doubter. This is Peter, the denier. This is Peter, the impulsive. This is Peter, the people pleaser. This is Peter, the one who uh, a moment later will tell Jesus what Jesus can and cannot do. This is Peter, the one who has so much difficulty in getting the the heart of the Christian gospel straight. No rules, or not rules, I should say, but, but, but the cross, Jesus' cross. This is Peter, the sinner. This is Peter, the broken. And whenever we see the church, we always need this side of the lens. Jesus' church is made of Peter's flawed, sinful, unreliable sinners. I mean, look at me. I'm the pastor of Stonehill Church. You know, in in this time of quarantine, I've learned over the weeks that Thursdays are my kind of hit-the-wall day. I just can't seem to get through a Thursday without either sinking down into deep, Deep discouragement or getting really, really angry and, and, and needlessly in both cases, <laughs> the people that used to live in our house before us, they had this cute little dog, and he this dog he, he chewed everything. If you go down to our basement, the very bottom step of the basement, you can see chew marks in, in the wall right there that i just I just can 't get rid of <laughs> I used to think, well, why did this dog do so much chewing? And now I get it. Cooped up in the house all day. I'd chew furniture. I'd I'd chew steps too. I'm a Peter. Jesus' church is made of Peters. So let me ask you, since that's the case, how many times have you, with shame, seen the church Let the world down by presenting a a truncated or withered or half Jesus, half gospel. I think, for instance, of the acquiescence of the church in Nazi Germany. Or I think of the the involvement of the church in the slave trade. Or I think of the resistance of the church to getting rid of Jim Crow or the, the, the slowness of the church to engage in civil rights. I've read recently, every, I don't know, every several days I'll read about a church somewhere that's presenting some sort of hateful Jesus during this coronavirus crisis. How many many times has a church let the world down? How many times has a church let you down? Misunderstood or ignored you? pigeonholed you, mistreated you. I mean, if we were one-on-one, I could give you some guidance on how to handle those particular situations, but uh, let me make a broader point here. Those situations themselves, whether you're being let down or the world being let down, those situations themselves are not, they are not proof that the church is just one more human institution, one more failed human institution. No, 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 no. Without trying to justify any of those situations, they don't, many of them do not deserve justification. Those situations are proof that Jesus uses Peter's. Those of you listening, don't write the church off Rather, repent and pray and work for the church's strengthening because the church is filled with Peters. And if you've trusted Christ and are therefore part of Jesus' church, you're a Peter too. So don't, please don't get high and mighty. Jesus uses Peters. Now let's get to the other side of the lens. And with this other side, I hope to deliver even more hope. The other side, the second side of the lens is Jesus' triumphant promise to all of us. Jesus says in verse 18, without qualification, without hesitation, I will build my church. It's one of the earliest mentions of church in New Testament era texts that we have, the the way... I should say it's one of the earliest mentions of church in the sort of way that we use it today. I mean, So much so it almost jumps off the page. Jesus hasn't even died yet or risen, and here he is talking about the church. I love it. Now let me say that Jesus is using a standard, ordinary word from the Greek Old Testament and the Jewish writings of the time. A standard, ordinary word that referred to the community of believers. And we can translate it church. That's fine. But let us never forget that for Jesus, church, church in this instance here, church means the community of the faithful. In fact, it means something even more specific than that. It means the community of the faithful in Jesus those who have faith in Jesus, because Jesus calls it my church. And I'm going to build it. And he says that with such certainty because he goes on and says, I'm going to build it, and you know what? The gates of hell, of of Hades, literally, that's death in first century talk. I'm going to build it, and death will not stop it. Generation after generation, the church will move forward by his resurrection. Jesus has stripped death as the enemy, the great enemy of the church. And so Christ builds his church today, generations after Peter. He's empowering communities of faith to, to preach and to live the gospel in this global pandemic to bring Jesus into hopeless situations, to bring his message of salvation and and the goodness that he injects into a community. Let me share with you in closing to inspire you, to fill you with hope, to lift up your head. Let me share with you in closing two examples of Jesus building his church today. Today, in this pandemic. The first one's over in India. India, a country with 1.3 billion people. That's four times the number of people in the United States of America. And all of them under forced lockdown. They're given an hour or two each day to go out and and get their necessities. And most homes there don't have the space or the appliances to provide for, for storage of any length of time. Now, there's a church in southern India... It's a church where Bijou Stanley, a member here at Stone Hill, where he has a cousin who's involved. So Bijou writes about this church of his cousin. The church is located in an area where about 40% of the workers come from northern India. Due to the lockdown, these workers were left without job and food. And so in late March, they started a protest, but they were beaten by the police and they were stopped. When members of the church realized that they were protesting because of lack of food, the members of the church were moved with compassion and they began to provide for 350 people food every day. The poor and the needy found out about this and they began to ask for help too. So now, now the church is making 950 packages of food every day to feed those at risk in their community. Wow, what a story. And don't hear that as simply a story of altruism. That is a story of Jesus building his Another example, much closer to home. I received a phone call on Tuesday. Someone in our church has had a real need, especially during this pandemic, to secure a better job. This person is smart and capable, but there were hoops to jump through and training to get, and it takes money to jump through those hoops and get that training. The Benevolence Fund here at Stonehill helped out. And so I had the call on Tuesday morning. Thank you, Pastor Matt. The tuition has been paid. I just don't know what to say except God bless you in Stonehill Church. Again, do not hear that as simply altruism. That is Jesus' promise. I will build my church. I want you to hear these fulfillments of Jesus' promise to inspire in you hope because Jesus has made a realistic unshakable promise here. I will build my church and I will use Peter's to do it. Let's pray. Father We are all just Peters, broken, weak, flawed, unreliable sinners. By your grace, transform us individually and collectively so that through us and in us, you would build and advance your church to the glory of the Father. Amen.